Welcome to CC Partners, the employer's choice. We provide expert legal and strategic advice in all areas of labor and employment law. By working closely with our clients, our experienced team delivers pragmatic, proactive solutions, resolving many issues before they escalate. Get to know us better at ccpartners.ca. Hello, and welcome to Episode 7 of the Lawyers for Employers podcast, presented by CC Partners. I'm Angela Wiggins, and I'm one of the Lawyers for Employers who works with CC Partners. I also have Brian Silva here with me. And I'm also one of the Lawyers uh, for Employers working with CC Partners. So CC Partners is a law firm that exclusively advises and represents employers in all areas of labor and employment law which I'm sure you already know if you've been listening to all of our previous podcasts. We have offices in Brampton, Barrie, and Sudbury, but we're happy to help employers all across Ontario. In today's episode, we're going to be taking a look at non-compete clauses and non-solicits. If you've been reading our previous blogs, uh, you'll know that I blogged on a case called Ceridian Dayforce Corporation back in early February 2018. This was a decision where an Ontario Superior Court Justice refused to enforce a non-competition agreement that was included in an employment contract for a software engineer. Again, you can check out our blogs on the CC Partners website where we're blogging on a variety of topics. That's at www.ccpartners.ca. If you're considering a non-compete or a non-solicit, there are at least three things that you should be thinking about when drafting your employment agreement. So the first is, does your company actually need a non-compete? Do you need a non-solicit? Or do you just need a general confidentiality clause? Second is, how much do you value the enforceability of the clause? Do you just want to have it there? Or do you care if you'll be able to rely on it in a court? And finally, if you do care about enforceability, you should be thinking about, is the clause that you have drafted and had signed off likely to be enforced? Before we go into whether your company actually needs a non-compete or non-solicit provision or just a confidentiality agreement, I think I should give us a little bit of background on how these agreements actually come into force. Non-competition and non-solicit agreements typically go into employment contracts and are agreed to before the employment relationship actually starts. Now, you can you can set these up as separate agreements but you still need to meet the basic elements of a contract. For example, there still needs to be something exchanged to enter into these agreements because they place significant restrictions on employees. So, I mean, the best time to do it is right at the start of the employment relationship because an employer is exchanging employment for these restrictive covenants. And if you want to hear more about uh, employment agreements and and how they are valid and, and enforceable, you can go back and listen to episode five of the Lawyers for Employers podcast. So now that we've had a brief overview from Brian about what you need to think about in order to have an enforceable employment contract, we need to decide what type of clause to restrict trade do you actually need. And in order to make that decision, you need to consider what each type of clause will do for you. So the first type of clause is a non-competition clause. This is a type of clause that a lot of employers think they want. A non-compete clause is a clause that alleges to prevent an employee from working for a competing company. So the idea is to prevent one of your employees from leaving your company and going and working for your competitor. Even though that type of clause may seem really appealing, the first thing you should keep in mind with this is that generally courts find these clauses to be unenforceable. 
Second type of clause that is still restrictive on a former employee, but is more likely to be enforced by a court. It's called a non-solicit clause. These types of clauses prevent employees from soliciting or trying to obtain business from clients of their former company. So the non-solicit will still allow the former employee to go and work for a competitor, but they won't allow your former employee to try to take your clients with them. And the third type of clause is a non-disclosure clause or a confidentiality agreement. This is the least restrictive type of these clauses. It doesn't restrict the type of work that a former employee can do or who they can work with, but instead what it does is it restricts the type of information that the former employee can share or use. And if I can just add quickly here, Angela, confidentiality is an implied term at common law. So there is an implied term to every employment agreement that employees will not share the confidential information of their current or former employers. But it, it still makes sense to set out these specific items that you want to be kept confidential, just in case there's any question down the line. Okay, so why do non-solicit and non-compete provisions matter? Well, it's actually critical that employers really assess what level, level of protection they need in each unique case at the time of hiring. So the appropriateness of each type of clause is likely to change based on the individual and their responsibilities and will not be standardized across the company. So for example, if you have a senior research developer, that position and that level of seniority may justify a non-compete with specific competitors, whereas a low-level analyst may only justify a non-solicit with the specific clients they've had contact with. Which leads us to our next question, which is, how much do you value the actual enforceability of these clauses or whether deterrence is enough? Now, courts will typically only enforce restraints on trade that are to the lowest level of restriction possible. And, And courts will not read down broader restrictions. For instance, if, if a court were to determine that a non-competition clause, you, you know, that six months would have been enough for the employer to get their affairs in order before this individual former employee would start competing, then if your clause sets out a one-year period, then the entire clause becomes unenforceable. Another example might be that if you only require a non-disclosure or a non-solicitation clause to, to, to sufficiently protect yourself as an employer, but you include non-competition language in the same provision, a court might strike the entire provision as opposed to removing the unnecessary non-competition language. So if enforceability is the key driver behind why you're including these provisions in the agreement, it's, it's probably best to go with a lower or softer restriction that you might be able to rely on in court. However, if if an employer is just looking to use these provisions as a deterrent in the employment agreement, it might make sense to go with a, a broader restriction to use that as a deterrent down the road, knowing full well that you probably won't be able to rely on it uh, in court. So once you've decided that you do care if your clause is enforceable, you'll need to consider what factors the courts will look at to determine whether or not a clause will be enforced if ever challenged. So the starting point is that generally, courts do not like restricting an individual's ability to work. So the general rule that any employer will be up against is that a restriction is unenforceable. Employers who want to enforce their restrictive covenants, though, are going to have to show that there's a proprietary interest, so some sort of stake for the company. It's often software development, pharmaceutical development, something that is important to your company, that is unique to your company, that is entitled to protection. Then you're going to have to prove that the clause is reasonable and clear. And finally, you have to prove that the clause is in the public interest. 
This can sometimes be difficult because it's usually in the public interest for former employees to be working again. With that in mind, it should be fairly obvious that restraints on trade shouldn't be used in every situation. It doesn't make sense to include these as a standard term in your employment agreements. You really do need to be considering it on a case-by-case basis. But once you've decided to include the term, what are the factors the courts will look at? So there are generally four factors. The first is what services are limited? What is the clause doing? In the case that I previously blogged about, the clause was faulted for restricting employment in any capacity. It said that the former employee couldn't work at all for competitors. And the court faulted this because it said, well, what is the harm in a former software engineer going to work for a competitor if he's only going to be a janitor? He's not taking your company interest into that role. So you need to be specific on what the former employee cannot do and really tie it to the interest you're trying to protect. The second factor that's going to be looked at is what businesses are restricted? Again, in Ceridian, the term competitive business as a restriction was too broad. The former employee didn't know what that meant. It covered too many possible employers and it essentially prevented the employee from working in his field. Generally, blanket clauses like this are going to be discouraged by the courts. Instead, you're more likely to have some success if you're able to specify the specific clients or companies that you're focusing on with your restrictive covenant, and if you're able to link those restrictions to the interest you're trying to protect. So if I could just jump in there quickly, Angela, I'd just add that the easiest way for employers to do this is to include language saying that any former client's of the company that the individual employee had contact with throughout their time there. That way you're not being overly broad You're only and you're only protecting yourself from the clients that the employee had contact with. Courts tend to find uh, that type of language to be enforceable. So the third factor is geographic scope. Courts generally don't like restrictive covenants that claim to cover the entire world, the, the entire continent of North America, all of Canada, really you need to think about limiting your geographic scope to what would actually impact your business. So the broader the geographic area, the more difficult it will be to enforce. So it may be appropriate to consider a county or a region, a city, or perhaps a section of a a province. And while that's not always possible, let's say you're a worldwide shipping company, it may be very difficult to delineate a certain region. If it is possible to do, it's it's very important, it's vital. Courts have overturned uh, quite a few of these covenants based uh, strictly on the geographic scope. And the, the fourth factor to look at is time. How long is this covenant going to prevent your former employee from either working, attracting clients, or non-disclosing uh, vital information to your company? So when you're thinking about the time limit that you're going to have in place on the clause, you need to really link the time to the interest you're trying to protect. So for example, if you were a pharmaceutical company and you were developing a new product to go to market and it was going to come to market within six months, it wouldn't make sense to prevent the employee from not working for a competitor for two years because after six months you would be at market. Generally, the longer a term is, the more risk there will be And a general rule of thumb is that courts typically do not like any clauses that are beyond two years. But again, whether or not a restrictive covenant will be enforced by the courts is very much an individual case-by-case assessment. It's difficult to consider all of the various factors that the courts will look at, and it's important to look at each specific circumstance. 
So what happens when a former employee breaches his non-competition or non-solicitation provisions from his employment agreement? Well, an employer has a few options. The first would be to seek an injunction to have the employee or the competitor for which the employee is now working for stop, uh, immediately cease and desist from soliciting former clients or from competing in any way. But if that is not effective and the employee or the new competitor continue to compete and or solicit the former employer's uh, clients, then court will typically assess damages by looking at the amount of business lost by the former employer and, and awarding that amount, or by looking at the amount of new business gained by the new competing employer as a result of the unlawful solicitation or competition. So today, Brian and myself have given an overview of non-solicits, non-competes, and non-disclosure agreements. But it's important to keep in mind that today all we're doing is giving information on what these types of clauses are and what factors the courts may look at. It's important to keep in mind for all of our listeners that each individual employer's context is different, and there's no universal rule that can be applied to restrictive covenants. Now, if you're looking to institute some employment contracts at your place of business, including non-competition or non-solicit clauses, or if you're looking to just have your current templates reviewed to make sure they're on par with the current state of the law, you can give our office a call or find us online by visiting our website, including the weekly Employers Edge blogs, at www.ccpartners.ca. And if you have general questions, we may be able to answer them on upcoming podcasts. You can find us on Twitter at CC Partners Law, where you can tell us what you want to hear our lawyers talk about using the hashtag AskCCPartners. And today's podcast hopefully helped Mike on Twitter who tweeted AskCCPartners. I hear that a former employee just violated our non-competition agreement. If I can prove it, what is my remedy? Thank you for listening to the Lawyers for Employers podcast, which has been brought to you by CC Partners.